Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this is the first time I've ever preached one-handed. <laughs> but I'm certainly glad to be here this morning. I, I, come, I came to church this morning uh, with uh, a very glad heart, a heart joyful. Uh, no place I'd rather be on a Sunday morning than right here with all of you, worshiping the Lord. I mean, I've been watching online uh, during my recovery, but it's just not the same. Uh, there's something very special that takes place when God's people are gathered together, and so uh, I'm so glad to be here. But on the other hand, I've, I've come this morning with an extremely heavy heart, and a great sense of sadness over what we see going on in our country. And it's as if the current administration is bent on destroying our nation. I mean, just look at the, some of the things that have happened in the last eight months, seven, eight months. Uh, we now have an energy crisis. We were energy independent. One of the first things done was to stop the XL, uh, the, the Keystone Pipeline, uh, cutting off energy that way, costing tens of thousands of jobs. And so we've gone from being energy independent to now being uh, energy dependent. And the president is uh, pleading with the Saudis to increase oil production to meet our needs, which has contributed to the economy. Our economy is in shambles. Inflation is at levels not seen in 30 years. And there's no recovery in sight. And then there's the border crisis. I mean, millions pouring across the borders. Um, the administration is seeking to keep uh, law enforcement authorities from arresting uh, illegal uh, immigrants. But the courts have ruled against the administration, but they're pushing back against that. Uh, there's another immigration policy that the Supreme Court ruled on, and the administration is pushing back against that as well, uh, taking to the executive branch powers uh, that is not theirs constitutionally. So we have the border crisis. And then, uh, to top all of that off, we have the travesty of Afghanistan. I was absolutely stunned and sickened and heartbroken for the Afghan people, especially for the believers there and for the American citizens that were left behind. This should not be. I mean, I wasn't in the military, served in law enforcement, but not in the military, but it doesn't take being in the military to understand the fact that if you're going to withdraw from a country, the first thing you do is get your citizens out than anyone else out that has a right to go out. Then you remove all of your arms and equipment, and then you withdraw your troops. 
And our military is not so inept that they don't know that, and neither is our commander-in-chief. This was intentional. Do you realize that the arms and equipment we left behind are the single largest loss of military arms and equipment by one nation in the history of the world? We have effectively armed an avowed enemy of the United States. And it appears it was intentionally so. It's called high treason. These things that I have mentioned have not just happened. These weren't just mistakes. They've been planned and carried out. And why is that? Well, we can only surmise that the far-left element in our government wants to institute a Marxist government. And you say, well, that, that could never happen here in the United States. Well, what do you mean? It's happening right now before our very eyes. Do you still think the lockdowns, the mask mandates, and vaccine mandates are about health and safety? I mean, for a disease with over a 99% cure rate? Wake up, folks. It's not about health and safety at all. It's about governmental control. It's about fear-mongering. It's about social conditioning. And I think we would have to say that psychological warfare is being um, raged against us and our children. Do you realize that by, by the fear that uh, uh, the administration and, and the CDC is, is causing, and by forcing our children to wear masks when that is not warranted, do you realize that they are conditioning our children to follow totally illogical orders without questioning them? This is about social conditioning, folks. And beyond that, in the spiritual scheme of things, it's conditioning for the end times. It's conditioning for end times mandates, like the mark of the beast, the inability to buy or sell without it. Now listen to me very, very carefully. The vaccine is not the mark of the beast. And I've seen people posting things online and, and, and on the internet, I mean, you know, along those lines, that the, that the shot, the vaccine is the mark of the beast. It is not. It can't be. Because the Antichrist isn't on the scene. And besides that, it's not a shot, it's a mark on the hand or the forehead. So let's not, let's not give uh, unbelievers any more uh, ammunition to hurl at us calling us a bunch of ignorant Bible thumpers. The vaccine is not the mark of the beast. But the world will have to be conditioned to readily receive the mark. And the lockdowns, the mask and vaccine mandates, they're all a part of that conditioning of, of the world's people to bring about the fulfillment of prophecy. And that's not a conspiracy theory. And that's not me wearing a tin hat. That's just simply basic logic. And with respect to uh, the issue of vaccines, if you have uh, 
researched it, and by that I mean done something other than listen to the mainstream media or Facebook, if you have researched that and you feel that the best way for you uh, to love your neighbor is to get the vaccine, well then by all means, if that's what you want to do, get the vaccine. If on the other hand, you have researched it, and you don't believe that that is the best way for you to love your neighbor, then by all means, do not get the vaccine. It's that simple. And neither side uh, should try to coerce the other side to do something against their conscience, because while the Scripture uh, does not address the issue of whether we should take a vaccine or not, the Scripture certainly does and is very clear when it comes to liberty of conscience. And so everyone with regard to the vaccine has to do what they believe is right in their own heart and leave it at that. And in addition to all of the things that I have already mentioned, if these things aren't bad enough, as a nation, we celebrate that the very things that God condemns, abortion, lesbianism, homosexuality, transgenderism, so what we see going on in our country is merely the reaping of the results of our high-handed sin against Almighty God. I mean, we are living in a country that is in its death throes. I mean, any society, any culture that reaches the point that we have is a dying culture. This country is in its death throes as a result of God's judgment of abandonment. That's where God just withdraws his restraining hand and says, if that's what you want, that's what you can have. If that's what you want, that's what you get. And God is withdrawing his restraining hand and he's giving us over as a nation to our sins. And we should be weeping and praying for America. We should lament and mourn over these things and and the moral demise of the country that we once loved. But even though these things sadden and grieve us, what we as believers must keep at the forefront of our minds is the glorious truth that our God reigns. And nothing takes God by surprise. God is not defeated. Nothing is going to prevail against him, and nothing is going to thwart the advance of his kingdom. And so no matter what happens uh, uh, to our nation, you know, God is sovereign. God does not react to human events, but rather he directs them. We have to remember God is in control. Things aren't falling apart, they're falling into place. God is in control, and so we have to trust him. Why? Well, because God is faithful. And these difficult times have an eternal purpose. And so all of this is merely a part of God's unfolding plan. And and our responsibility uh, as believers is the same as it's always been. To love God to become like him and to serve him and to faithfully proclaim the gospel because people need to hear about Jesus because he is the only hope for our nation. The gospel is the answer. 
And we have to remember that all we're seeing in our country and around the world is first and foremost a spiritual problem. It's not primarily a political problem. It is first and foremost a spiritual problem. It is ultimately the result of man's rejection of God and his word. I mean, I don't think I have to tell you, but we live in a world that openly opposes God in big ways and in small ways. So all of this is about rebellion against God. What we are seeing is simply the the world manifesting its rebellion toward God. I mean, this is man saying, we will not have God rule over us. This is about man seeking to build his own utopia in utter defiance of God and his word. And with that in mind, Psalm 2 has never been more relevant. So turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2. I'm going to have you stand in just a moment to read the psalm, but I'm actually going to read both Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 because there is uh, some evidence in both Jewish and Christian traditions that Psalm 2 was at one time joined to Psalm 1 so that both psalms together were considered the first psalm. In fact, the oldest uh, Greek text of Acts 13.33, Psalm 2, seven is referred to as being from Psalm 1. Of course, our modern versions change the reference to Psalm 2, which is the way the psalm is presently numbered. But the fact that the oldest text called Psalm 2, Psalm 1, indicates that at one time the two were together. Psalm 2 then shares with Psalm 1, really in the role of introducing the psalm. So I'm going to have you stand, follow along as I read Psalm 1 and 2. Beginning now in Psalm 1, uh, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why do the nations rage and peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of a decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. The second psalm doesn't have a title and it contains no hint of who wrote it. However, in Acts chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, both Peter and John attribute Psalm 2 to King David. They said it was God through the mouth of his servant David who said these words by the Holy Spirit. So God spoke through David. These words were inspired by God and written by David, and they are given to us as Psalm 2. Psalm 2 would also be classified as a messianic psalm. In other words, it has the Messiah in view throughout the entire psalm. Now, some have said it applies to David on one level, and then on a second level, it applies to the Messiah. But explicitly, Messianic Psalms do not have one level of application devoted to Israel's king and a second level devoted to the Messiah. They have the Messiah in view throughout. And as one commentator said, we should not be surprised to find such songs. The entire Old Testament period was one in which people of faith anticipated his coming. It is reasonable to expect then that God would give his people various kinds of prophecies to fan the flame of their faith. As the Lord's anointed king over Israel, David certainly experienced opposition. But there's nothing in the accounts of David's reign that fits the details of Psalm 2. And that's because this psalm is not written of David or his merely human descendants, but of the future divine Messiah. And this means that you and I cannot understand this psalm until we realize that it is an expression of the rebellion of a human heart against God and not a limited revolt of a human king or kings against David or his successor. And so when David wrote Psalm 2, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was writing prophetically. He was looking forward to a future time in which the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, would appear on the stage of human history. Psalm 2 speaks of the natural opposition that sinners have toward the the Messiah, the, the ongoing rebellion of a lost world against God. And of course, we know this uprising began when Adam and Eve, our parents, first sinned in the Garden of Eden, and it will continue uh, to the end of the age. And of course, the world's rebellion against God is in reality a revolt against the reign of God's Son over all the earth. But all of the arrogant attempts of, of sinful man to overthrow the sovereign rule of God will fail. The message of Psalm 2 is that God has powerfully and decisively set his son on the throne to end this world's rebellion. I mean, God isn't going to let this go on forever. He has raised up a king, King Jesus, with authority over every person and every nation. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And at the end of this psalm, all unbelievers are called upon by God to bow before his son, to bow before King Jesus before it's too late. In Psalm 2, you could say the doctrine of the two ways introduced in Psalm 1, that is the way of the godly and the way of the ungodly is is carried forward now, but, but at a much higher pitch. 
On the one hand, the way of sinners in Psalm 1 now becomes a cosmic revolt of the nations against God and His anointed. It becomes an unfolding of the wrong path and its consequences. So we could say that Psalm 2 is what it looks like when the counsel of the wicked and the way of sinners and the seed of scoffers goes national and international. And talk about a relevant passage for today. So these are not merely 12 obscure verses from the Old Testament written 3,000 years ago that have very uh, little relevance for anyone today. But rather, as Lloyd-Jones said, there is scarcely a more relevant passage of Scripture we could hear at this present time than this psalm. If that was true when Lloyd-Jones said it and he went to be with Jesus in 1981, it is even more true today. Psalm 2 divides into four equal parts. In the first section, verses 1 to 3, the writer, uh, the psalmist, speaks about human rebellion. In the second section, in verses 4 to 6, we have God's response to human rebellion. And then in the third section, verses 7 to 9, we have the words of God's anointed, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the last section, verses 10 to 12, the psalmist speaks again, offering a warning and an invitation to all who oppose Christ. So let's look at the first section as the psalmist speaks about human rebellion. Notice verse 1. The psalmist asks, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? So here's a hostile world. Nations rage and peoples plot. So expressing his absolute amazement, David begins the psalm with why? Why? And of course, David didn't expect a reply when he asked the question because there really is no reply. It's the why of indignation. It's the why of amazement. It's it's an expression of astonishment that the nations are seeking to overthrow the Lord. I mean, David is shocked. He's stunned. Because it's all so senseless to those who know God and His glory. Because when you consider all that God has done for the nations, I mean, how can they rebel against Him? I mean, in His common grace, God has given them life. He has provided for their basic needs. He has guided them, kept them alive, and even sent a Savior to bring forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Yet from the Garden of Eden to the Tower of Babel, to the crucifixion of Jesus, to the Battle of Armageddon, The Bible records man's foolish rebellion against the will of his Creator. Why, David asked, do the nations rage? In other words, he's saying they have no reason to rage against God, and they have no benefit in raging against Him. Why, he asked, do the people's plot? You know, why do they rage and devise plans against God? Because such plans are in vain. It means empty. Destined to fail. David cannot believe the nations would plot something so absolutely foolish that was destined to fail. But they do. They do. Man rebels, and and leading this global rebellion, leading this resistance against God are the political and national leaders of the world. Look at verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord 
and against his anointed. And so the nations and and peoples, led by their kings and rulers, both religious and political, direct their hostility toward the Lord and, and his anointed. The word is actually Messiah. That's what it is in Hebrew. And when the word is brought over in the Greek New Testament, it is Christos, in English, Christ. And so here is a worldwide rebellion led by the kings and rulers of the earth against God and Christ. They set themselves against the Lord. And the word set literally means to take one stand. In other words, to get ready for war. So the kings of the earth take a stand against God. They're they're ready to fight against him. And how utterly foolish. I mean, the consequences of this defiance against the Lord and His Christ are are described in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Read the passage. It is not a pretty picture. It describes what's going on in our country. It says three times throughout that passage, and God gave them over to a debased mind, and God gave them over, and God gave them over. And a debased mind is a mind that that, that, is, that is worthless, it, it, it's non-functioning uh, with respect to discerning good from evil, right from wrong. The psalmist also says the rulers take counsel together. In other words, they conspire together. They're planning their strategy. They are firmly united in one thing, and that is their hatred of God. Now, it's important that we note That the world has not set itself against the idea of God in general. In fact, people around the world are usually religious. In fact, there is an increase today in spirituality, but not biblical Christianity. And this is because by nature men are against the God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And that's why human beings across the globe are offended by the God of the Bible. And that is why they rage against Him. That is why they hate Him. If you read Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, down in verse 30, it says that it speaks of unbelievers as being haters of God. That is exactly what they are. They're haters of God. And they rage against Him. And so David tells us the nations and the peoples rebel and and they are led in this resistance by their leaders. And so this rebellion is not something imposed on the masses by the kings and rulers of the world. No, no. No, this is a popular grassroots movement which embraces everyone. Rulers and people alike. It's, It's a mass movement which has popular support. Because you see, the world is of one mind. It may have its different political systems, different ideas about economic and social structures, about education and and national goals, but it is united in this. Get rid of God. Now, we can understand rebellion against tyrants like Stalin or Mao or Hitler and Mussolini or uh, More recently, Saddam Hussein or Muammar Gaddafi. We can understand that. We can understand rebellion against apartheid, fascism, Marxism, and communism. We know why men rebel against tyranny. 
We know why men rebel against injustice and poverty, but rebellion against God? I mean, rebellion against the one who said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I mean, rebellion makes no sense at all. And it is to spit in the face of the one who has given you life the one who has given, given you everything valuable in life and who gives you the very breath that is in your mouth. The one thing the nations can agree on is we will not have this man rule over us. And of course, the premier example of this rebellion was the crucifixion of Jesus, the Messiah. Loved ones, the world hates God. It utterly detests Jesus, and it despises his people. You don't think so, turn on the news. Second thought, don't do that, it's too depressing. (laughs) But just a couple days ago, TV personality Joy Reid was uh, responding to the uh, Supreme Court decision to uphold the new Texas uh, ban on uh, certain abortions, This is what Joy Reid said uh, on television. uh, The more appropriate term for conservative evangelical Christianity is Talibanism. That's what they think of Christians. I mean, we're considered a threat to national security. We're considered terrorist threats. We need to understand what we can expect from the world. And what can we expect? Well, this is what Jesus said. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's what we can expect from the world. And we shouldn't be surprised when it happens, but we are. Because we live in this bubble uh, called the United States, or we haven't, uh, up to this point, experienced these things. But our brothers and sisters in Christ have been experiencing them around the world from, from the very beginning of the church. The people of the world have had enough of the God of the Bible. They take their stand against Him and against Christ, saying, look at verse 3, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They hate God, they hate his claims to be their creator, uh, the, the one to whom they must give an account on the day of judgment, and they want to be free to do as they please without being faced with the warnings of God and the restraints God's word puts on society. May the moral and ethical teachings of the Bible are repulsive to the rebellious human heart. May what the Bible has to say about the sanctity of life the sanctity of marriage, sexual purity, respect for parents, reverence for those in authority, about sin, salvation, and coming judgment is revolting. It is totally unacceptable to the unbelieving world. They hate it. They reject it. 
They desire to be free from the control of God. They're seeking freedom without God, but that's absolute foolishness. Because the only true freedom we can have comes from submitting our lives to God and doing His will. I mean, freedom without authority is anarchy. And anarchy absolutely destroys. I mean, those who oppose the Lord and His anointing think of God as someone who brings bondage. But you know what? That kind of attitude is nothing more than evidence of spiritual insanity. Because God is not a bondage bringer, but rather He is a bondage breaker. I mean, Christ came to proclaim liberty to the captives. Christ came to set at liberty those who are oppressed. He said, you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. Spurgeon said to a graceless neck, the yoke of Christ is intolerable. But, he said, to the saved sinner, it is easy and light. Loved ones, our nation and world is a mess morally, intellectually, socially, politically, economically, and ecologically because it has defied and rebelled against the God of heaven. And all the things that we're seeing today are merely manifestations of sin bursting forth from a rebellious, depraved human race. But you know something? It's important for us to remember that in the heart of every human being is the capacity of every known sin. The capacity for every known sin is in my heart, and it's in your heart. You see, we are all from the same stock of utter sin. And you and I must never forget that the only thing that separates us from the most vile sinner on the face of this earth is the grace of God shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our nation and world is a mess because it's defied and rebelled against God and rejected Christ. And of course, ultimately, this rebellion is going to reach its apex in the last days when the kings of the earth will stand against the Lord to fight against Him at the battle of Armageddon, and they'll all be destroyed, slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of Him who sits upon the white horse, speaking, of course, of the returning Christ when He returns in all of His power and glory. I mean, Spurgeon was right when he said, we have in these first three verses a description of the hatred of human nature against the Christ of God. And that is exactly how Scripture pictures the human race as totally depraved by the effects of original sin. But you know what? They can hate all they want. They can plan all they like. They can fret and fuss and fight and rebel all they wish. But they will never, ever rid themselves of God. Man's rebellion and hostility is futile because God is the sovereign creator, ruler, and king over all. And now in the second section in verses 4 to 6, David records 
our sovereign God's response demands rebellion. Notice verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord, hold, the Lord holds them in derision. Well, how does God respond to man's rebellion? Well, he's not fearful. He doesn't tremble and hide. He's not peering out from behind the clouds, counting the enemy, trying to figure out uh, whether or not he has enough power to overcome this challenge to his kingdom. Well, that's not what he's doing at all. He doesn't even get up from where he's sitting. God's response to worldwide human rebellion is he sits on the throne of heaven and he laughs. He laughs. That's God's answer. He simply sits back on his throne and fills the universe with terrible laughter. And this is the only place in the Bible where God is said to laugh. But what we have to understand is this is not a pleasant laugh. God is not laughing in amusement. God is not laughing because the world's rebellion is some kind of, you know, silly little joke. Because God takes sin very seriously. He holds them in derision. It means to treat with contempt, to mock. So this is the laugh of divine mockery and contempt. God is laughing at these puny little kings and rulers who are defiantly shaking their fist at his throne. That would be like an ant shaking his fist at you as you prepared to just grind him into nothing. They're shaking their fists at his throne and, and his rule over them, and God laughs. And this is exactly what man's attempts to throw off the rule of the sovereign God deserve, nothing but laughter. I mean, men are such fools. And how can finite, insignificant man ever hope to win against Almighty God? And he can't. I mean, it's, it's utterly ridiculous. The God of the universe looks with sovereign derision at man's feeble attempts to overthrow his rule, and he just laughs. He laughs because he reigns in unrivaled sovereignty and supremacy. God said through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I mean, loved ones, our God rules and reigns. And he is no more surprised by the current state of affairs in our nation than he was when the rulers crucified his son 2,000 years ago. God is in absolute control of, of this, just as he is over a star billions of light years away. Just as he is over the return of Jesus Christ to make all things right. I mean, God is in absolute control. As R.C. Sproul said, there is not one rogue molecule in the universe. 
And the God of the Bible saw all of this coming, but not only saw it, he ordained it for his own divine purposes. And so we can rest in that. And that, as one man said, is the Christian's lullaby. That's how we can sleep at night, knowing that our God reigns, that our God is in control, and he's simply bringing about his plan and purposes. And so no matter how determined and imaginative the apostasy of depraved humanity may be, it can never succeed in tearing down the supreme sovereign authority of God. And as the psalmist said in Psalm 39, 9-11, through 11, For he spoke, God spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. And so in the midst of man's rebellion, God isn't stricken with terror, doesn't fly into a panic, doesn't call an emergency session of the heavenly cabinet. No, he just laughs at man's futile attempts to overthrow him. As one man said, God is so sovereign and so holy that the upheaval of the highest levels of human government solicits an unworried disdain from heaven's throne. And this truth, he said, and pay attention to this, this truth, he said, is not ammo for Christians to angrily blast the culture. But rather, it is to strike us with sorrow for our unregenerate rulers. It is motivation for us to pray for our rulers and leaders. It is fuel for our own fear. It is motivation to compassionately preach the gospel. And that's what this should provoke us to. To a greater fear and reverence our sovereign God, to compassion for the lost, and it should be a motivation to proclaim the gospel. Well, after laughing, God speaks. His divine laughter uh, turns to fury in verses 5 and 6. Look at verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, So here God speaks to rebuke and to terrify these rulers. And he speaks with words of burning indignation. We must never forget that God rejects all of those who reject him. And as Psalm 711 said, he feels indignation every day. Or as another translation puts it, he is angry with the wicked every day. And today God is speaking to the nations in grace and and calling them to trust in His Son. But the day will surely come when, when God will speak to them in His wrath and send terrible judgment to the world. Because if people will not accept God's judgment of sin at the cross and trust Christ alone for salvation, they will surely accept God's judgment of themselves and their sins. In response to man's insane attempts to overturn God's eternal plans, the Lord thunders from heaven. Look at verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So God declares he's appointed his son to be king in Zion and and foretells his triumph. You see, there's only one legitimate king. 
And that is God's Son who is now seated on the throne of glory next to the Father, next to the Ancient of Days. And today there is no king in Israel, but there is a king enthroned in the heavenly Zion. And the Lord God declares that he has already done the very thing that his enemies most want to prevent. He has already made Christ king. As one commentator wrote, this declaration speaks first to the present enthronement of Christ at the right hand of God following his ascension, bestowing upon him the place of highest privilege and authority. But ultimately, these words anticipate the return of Christ to earth and his glorious enthronement during his 1,000-year reign from Jerusalem. And so this is so certain that it's spoken of here as already being done. I mean, it's a done deal. God has set, God has established his king. He will be enthroned in Jerusalem. The coronation has already occurred. God has unilaterally appointed Christ to rule over all the earth. He's not seeking earth's support. He's not pleading for the wealthy to send donations to his campaign for king. He's not pleaded for an election. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him, and no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? God has installed his king. And even though there's rebellion on earth, there is nothing but tranquility in heaven. And God laughs because his kingdom is secure. The king has been established. The Lord Jesus Christ is God's king. And though the nations rebel, we don't need to worry because the king, our king, is already enthroned in heaven. And now in this third section, in verses 7 to 9, we have the words of God's anointed. We have the words now of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here the Son of God speaks. Notice verse 7. I will tell of the decree. So all that the Father has planned and purposed in eternity past, the Son will proclaim and, and perform within time and history. In the eternal council of the Trinity, the Father spoke to the Son, and, and Jesus tells of the decree that God the Father spoke to him. Jesus says, the Lord said to me, or the Father said to me, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. And this is the first reference to the Father-Son relationship in the Trinity. And this Father-Son role was demonstrated in the Incarnation. Now, this verse does not suggest that Jesus Christ, the second member of the Godhead, is a created being as the Jehovah Witnesses would have us to believe. Rather, uh, it is a ref rather than a reference to origin, because there is no procreation within the Trinity, this conveys the essential oneness that is shared between the Father and and the Son. And this verse is quoted in the New Testament with reference to the birth of Jesus and also to his resurrection. And so this statement points to the incarnation and to the resurrection. As one man said, Jesus was eternally the Son of God from everlasting to everlasting. He was incarnately the Son of God when he came down to that Bethlehem stable to be born as a man among men. He was manifestly the Son of God when he came back from the dead in invincible power. He is gloriously the Son of God as God's own chosen King. And so he said, the Lord has a word to say about his sonship. 
And all the atheists and cultists in the world are not going to change the fact that Jesus Christ is God's unique Son. And so God decrees that that Jesus Christ is His Son. And as the Lord Jesus continues to speak, He reveals what God is going to do in the future. Notice verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Here the Father decrees that as God's appointed King, Christ will have the nations as His inheritance. In other words, the Father has promised Him complete victory over the nations. And that one day He will rule and reign over all the kingdoms of the world and all judgment is committed to Him. And then from among the nations, a vast multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation previously given to him by the Father in eternity past will come to Christ and and become his own possession. One commentator wrote, Because of Christ's submission to the Father's will, God will bestow a rich legacy upon his Son, a vast inheritance that is now being progressively realized and will be fully transferred to him during the millennial kingdom. And the Father, we're told, will also give the Son the ends of the earth as his possession. So all the earth will submit to his authority and his rule will extend from shore to shore, from, from sea to shining sea, from, or to the ends of the earth. And all who resist him, will be crushed by his great power. And notice verse 9. The Lord Jesus tells us, The Father also decreed, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. From other scriptures, we learn that Christ will exercise this authority both when he returns to earth and then throughout his millennial reign. When the time comes for Christ to return to establish and enforce his kingly rule, we have to remember that he is not going to be welcomed with open arms. Rather, he's going to return to a God-hating, Christ-defying world, a world in which the, the kings of the earth and their armies have gathered together at Armageddon to fight against him, but he destroys them with just a word. The kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ doesn't come because the world welcomes his reign and evolves into the kingdom of God. Rather, it comes because Christ imposes his reign by force on a rebellious people. And so at the beginning of his rule, when he returns to earth, he will destroy those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel. And then... During his millennial reign, during his thousand-year reign here on earth, Christ will rule with the rod of iron, punishing rebellion wherever it raises its ugly head. And he will break the rebellious nations with the rod of iron and, and dash, he will dash in pieces all rebellious people as he rules and reigns from his throne in Jerusalem. So you see, Christ's rule will be just It will be just, but it will also be firm. And all those who oppose, he will smash like like so many clay pots. And so the second coming of Christ is going to mean wrath to all who rebel against God and his anointed king, 
But for you and I and every other believer, it's going to be nothing but great joy and refuge for all of those who by faith have submitted to God's plan to rule the world through Jesus Christ. That's the picture God's decree gives us. His appointed king, his son, will rule the nations and he will establish his reign with overwhelming force. And that, loved ones, that is the decree that is controlling history. God's decree. Not the decrees of men, not the decrees of earthly rulers, not the executive orders of presidents, not the decrees of tyrants, But God's decree controls history. It is his word that determines what will take place and prevail in the history of this world. And loved ones, the certainty of this decree needs to permeate our worldview and and our life view. It should absolutely color the way that we look at everything from politics uh, and, and world conditions to everything else. And we may not always know what what to make of things. And it certainly is not immediately obvious that the cause of Christ is winning in our neighborhoods, our state, our nation, or the world. But we can rejoice in that we know this. We know where history is headed. We know what God's decree is and, and how it controls and will shape everything. I mean, we we've read the book, right? We know who wins. And this is what keeps God's people glued together during this present age when things appear to be falling completely apart all around us. And now in this last section, in verses 10 to 12, the writer speaks again, offering a warning and an invitation to all of those who oppose Christ. If hostility and rebellion against God is futile, and it is, then the only reasonable thing for men to do is to throw down their arms and submit to God, right? And David says in verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. You know, be wise. It means to think these things out or think this thing out. Recognize the situation for what it is. And stop nursing any hope of succeeding against God. Use wisdom and repent of your foolish rebellion. Give up your foolish defiance of the Lord. I mean, be wise kings, he's saying. Be warned rulers. And we would say, be wise, Governor Newsom. Be wise, President Biden. Be wise and be warned, Nancy Pelosi. Be wise and warn Congress and Senate. Be wise, Putin. Be wise, Xi Jinping. Be wise, Ayatollah. Be wise and be warned, Taliban. And be wise and be warned, all of you who despise God and His Son. Be wise and be warned. Men need to come to their senses. And God's Spirit right now is patiently reasoning with them. God is patient and long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. And he is patiently reasoning with them. And 
And so instead of resisting God, all sinners must turn around and look at verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Serve the Lord with fear means to worship God. It means to recognize God's greatness and bow in awe before Him. I mean, no longer should men rebel against God and serve themselves, but they must turn to God and submit their lives wholly to Him and serve Him. And not only that, the psalmist says they must rejoice with trembling. It means that in submitting to God in in deep reverential fear, they will find true joy and happiness. I mean, men might think serving the Lord is a miserable thing. <laughs> and unfortunately, some Christians give the appearance that it is. But serving the Lord is really the greatest joy that one can ever have. And if people only understood this, recognized this, they'd be more willing to cease their rebellion. As one man said, serve, rejoice, fear, and trembling describe the religious responses of the righteous in worship. They are to lead lives of submission, not rebellion. Lives characterized by fear and trembling, not arrogance. Lives filled with exultation, not the gloom of oppression. And so what does the psalmist call on these rebellious human beings to do? To be wise, to be warned, to serve the Lord with fear, to rejoice with trembling, but primarily they are to kiss the Son. They are to kiss the Son in grateful, loving submission. Look at verse 12. David says, kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. And the image here is that of submission to a king. I mean, this depicts the the kiss of submission and even reconciliation. It means to submit to him his rule and reign in your life and then to show him homage and true affection. Kiss the Son is the Old Testament way of saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You know, bow the knee to King Jesus. Take Him as your own Lord. End your rebellion. Bring to Him all that is yours. Submit to Him. Follow Him wherever He directs. Do whatever He says. Because you are in the presence of a great and glorious King. And so your life must be one of worshipful submission. And Christ is Lord and King. And you and I should start living like that. He is not our servant. He is not a genie in a bottle to whistle up any time we have trouble and then we have nothing to do with him the rest of the time. He is a great king. He is Lord and king. And he is a demanding king. He demands to be served with fear. He demands that we totally serve Him in every area of our life and that we hold nothing back. He wants us to hold no area back. It is total submission to Him. 
And so the warning here is to submit to God's Son, His anointed King, to cease hating Him and rather start loving Him, start serving Him, worshiping Him. What about those who refuse to submit and continue in their hostile rebellion? Well, the rest of the verse, the rest of verse 12 gives the answer. Kiss the Son, you know, submit to the Son, or what? Well, look at the verse. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. You see, the warning is that, is that this king, King Jesus, can also become righteously angry and reveal his holy wrath suddenly and without warning. And so the kings and the rulers of the earth, along with every other unbeliever, must understand that this supreme, divine ruler and king whom they defy and reject is not just another human ruler, but rather he is God's own son, God's own appointed king. He is God himself. And so it is in their best interest to immediately humble themselves and submit their lives totally to him. So you see, the option is clear. Those who refuse to submit will one day be cut off. Cut off while they're still walking in the way of rebellion. They'll be going along in their hatred, spewing out their venom against God, and He will step in and cut them off and send them into eternal destruction. In short, men are presented really with this option concerning Christ. Either cherish Him or perish. Cherish Him or perish. Spurgeon said, You sinners, seek His grace, whose wrath you cannot bear. Fly to the shelter of the cross and find salvation there. For a man to disbelieve and defy God is about as irrational thing as a person can do. In fact, it's absolutely insane. It's insane. The psalmist said in Psalm 14.1, the fool, and it means the insane man, the fool, the insane man says in his heart, there is no God. On the other hand, To trust God is the most sane, logical, reasonable thing a man could possibly do. But that, of course, is the very thing that kings and rulers will not do. And that is why they're in danger of a final and fierce destruction. You see, the responsibility of all human rulers and authorities is to obey the highest authority of the universe because the responsibility of all humanity is to obey Christ. And in the end, God will judge the small and the great alike for deeds done in the body. God will be fair. He will be exacting. The judge of all the earth will do right. And so try as they may, God has spoken from his throne and no one, no president, no congress, no governor, prime minister or parliament, no tyrant, no power on earth can change what God has established. 
And as with all rebellion against God's law and his design, it will prove utterly futile and extremely painful. And it will end in unalterable eternal punishment. And so that behooves each one of us to make sure that we are not among those who disbelieve and defy God. The rulers of the world rage against Christ, but why should you? Why should you? As one man wrote, the hands he holds forth for you to kiss are the hands that were pierced by nails when he was crucified in our place. And one day he is coming as the great judge of all, and on that day the wicked will be punished. But today is the day of his grace, and he invites you to come to him. And the final line in verse 12 says, notice please, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And to take refuge in the Lord is really synonymous with having saving faith. It's a reminder that the only refuge from the wrath of God is God's mercy that was unfolded at the cross in Jesus Christ. Only in the Son, only in Christ is there safety from the wrath of God. And so sinners must kiss the Son, submit to Him, find their refuge in Him today while God is speaking in grace because one day, a time that the age of grace will come to an end and God will begin to speak in wrath. And so Psalm 2 ends with promised blessing for all who put their trust in the Son of God, all who find refuge in Him. And that promise still stands. So what does all of this mean for us at this present hour? Well, it means that Whatever happens in our nation, it changes nothing as far as what we do. As Christians, we are called to be good stewards of everything that God has given us, and that includes the citizenship that God has blessed us with in this country. And so that means uh, we should be doing all we can to work for the good of our nation. We should be doing all that we can to resist evil and tyranny, to make our voices heard, you know, speaking out against evil, registering our opposition, voting a Christian worldview, doing all we can within the sphere of influence which God has placed us, remembering that God works through his people. So the fact that Christ is coming, heaven is our eternal home, is no excuse for lack of responsibility or for sinful passivity. We're to do all that we can for the good of our nation, but we have to always be praying. That is most important. Uh, We must always be praying because ultimately it is all in the hands of the Lord and we will trust God for the outcome, whatever that may be. Because his plan cannot be thwarted. But of even greater importance than the things I just mentioned, it means that as the church, our Christian responsibility has not changed. Because the Bible does not change. And so it means that we do not retreat into isolation. We do not compromise the truth to accommodate the culture. 
You know, we don't bring in uh, critical race theory or intersectionality or social justice into the church as a tool of any kind. We don't compromise the truth. We don't allow Caesar or the state to restrict our worship or dictate how we worship. The church does not belong to Caesar. The church belongs to Christ. And Christ instructs us on how and when we are to worship. So we don't allow Caesar to uh, restrict or, or our worship or dictate how we worship. We, we do not allow this to stop us. We do, we do not allow this to silence us. We speak the truth in love because we are called to be people of the truth, even when the truth is not popular and even when the truth is denied by the culture around us. I mean, Christians have found themselves in this position before. And we will again. But God's truth has not changed. The gospel of Jesus Christ has not changed. The mission of the church has not changed because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so in this dark hour that we live in, we as God's people have this wonderful opportunity to do what we're always supposed to do. To be light and salt. We're not supposed to be living in fear. The world needs to see a church and Christians that are fearless. Oh, I might die. Well, praise God, it's a portal to heaven. That's the worst that can happen? Quit living in fear. We do not need to live in fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and love and of self-control. Don't buy into all of the fear-mongering. We are not to live in fear. We are to live boldly and courageously for Jesus Christ. We are to humbly, lovingly, and intentionally avoid the bunker mentality and be in the world with hope and prayer that God rescues some, because he will. God is still in the business of saving. And so all of this madness that's going on in our country and the world is just a very stark reminder for the church that the earth is not heaven, that the hope of humanity uh, is not and has never been in an earthly ruler or leader or a political party, that the world still needs Christ, that we are still to love our neighbor, and we are still to unashamedly proclaim the gospel to sinners because that is our only hope. Listen, every human being enters the world as a natural, fist-shaking enemy of God. And yet, incredibly, and it is so incredible, And the God of the universe stepped out of heaven and into the muck and mire of humanity. And as a man, he he lived a perfect, sinless life in complete obedience to God. And at the cross, he endured the righteous wrath of God, which we deserved as sinners. He, He died the death that we deserve for our sin. And Christ was treated as God's supreme enemy so that we might be treated as his beloved children for all eternity. He died for our sin. 
He was buried and rose the third day for our justification. He ascended to heaven where he is today, seated at the right hand of the Father and all of his power and glory. And he is ever interceding for those who belong to him, waiting until that moment in time where he calls us out of this world. And, and the last seven years will begin. By turning and by turning from, from uh, by turning from trusting in self to trusting in Christ, and we can receive forgiveness for sin. We can be reconciled to God and begin living in the in the joy of obedience to Him, regardless of of how dark the world is and how dark the world may become. And this morning, if you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, God is appealing to you. Uh, through this psalm this morning. And he is saying to you, be wise. You know, be warned. You know, be reasonable. You can't keep fighting against God. You need to bend your knee to King Jesus and submit your life to him and love him and become like him and serve him. Because you see, true blessing doesn't come from being free to live your own life. That just ends up in bondage and chains. No, true blessing and true joy and happiness comes from submitting to and following the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, having the attitude of the psalmist when he said, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longs after you. Crave your longing after Jesus this morning. It's your love that makes me see. It's your word that comforts me by your blood. We have been set free. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Bro.